Welcome to February's Cloud Insights, sponsored by Lidos. Now here's your host, John Gilroy. Welcome and thanks for joining us. My guest today is Keith Johnson, Chief Technology Officer and Chief Engineer, Defense and Intelligence Group at Lidos. You know, here we are in 2018, and uh, the cloud is actually kind of a mature industry. You know? Much of the hype of the ROI in moving to the cloud has subsided, and people are taking a careful look at what this transition to the cloud costs. Really does. Large, well-known vendors make it easy, I'm not gonna name names here, make it easy to jump to the cloud. All you need is a uh, credit card, you're off to the races, you know? What's happening is there are federal agencies that are getting sticker shock the first month of this transition. So we got to talk about the money. You know the phrase, show me the money. Let's talk about the money. So, so how can a federal agency evaluate the ROI of moving to the cloud? Well, I think it begins, John, with understanding the motivations for moving to the cloud. Um, so uh, is the move to the cloud really about um, uh, needing to scale? Is it about uh, needing to modernize? Or potentially, is it to... Uh, change uh, to change the paradigm for uh, how they operate. The cloud, what it does for agencies and organizations is it really flips uh, your paradigm from a CapEx-centric model to an OpEx-centric model. And I don't think that is fully understood in the ROI calculations. Uh, in the cloud, you're paying for every, every service by the, and sometimes by the minute. Uh, instead of just paying, you know, a yearly amount for infrastructure and this kind of letting it run, uh, the key to um, evaluating the move to the cloud and really your ROI metrics needs to start with how you are measuring the uh, services and the ultimate value that you're providing. Uh, so if you're if you're not ready to really talk about OpEx as a central thematic. Uh, in and how you're delivering IT services to users and customers, uh, it's going to be very difficult to get a full, a good handle on uh, what ROI really means. So you can't go to your bookshelf and dust off the old uh, metrics you used before. Whole different set of metrics for cloud services. Exactly, exactly. the The key really is: um, uh, Do you know uh, how much it costs to deliver a certain service? You know, it, it's a very difficult. Um, metric to, to gain that one number. It's easy to talk about how much I buy for storage, how much I buy for you know compute infrastructure, how much I pay software developers, how much I pay network engineers and, and, and system admins. But to really uh, boil that up into a number for a specific service is very difficult. Uh, and then to translate that into what a cloud a cloud service provider could could uh, prov could provide in that kind of a number um, is a difficult uh, transition to make. Uh, it's very important to think in that context in order to get uh, a true ROI value. And uh, we all have numbers here, but you can't put a number on something like convenience or mm -hmm. something like uh, ability to expand at some indeterminate time in the future. You know, so so how, what do you value that? With zero to ten? I mean, how do you do that? It's, uh, so I I tend to value those very very highly. Um, because uh, ultimately convenience uh, efficiencies are what drive new services. Uh, and where we are in the, in the IT industry, it, as, we're, as we're maturing as an, as an industry, it's not about infrastructure. It's about service delivery and meeting an evolving in-customer need. Uh, and so I, quantifying what it means to to create a new service within days instead of weeks, months, or years um, is a uh, is what the challenge is. And that's where really where the ROI comes from. So um, 
new service delivery through efficiencies and also uh, scaling that that service to uh, meet the customer demand uh, is is extremely important, something the cloud offers uh, fairly natively if you do it correctly. So if we just look at ROI, sometimes we forget the big picture. And in this world, it's cybersecurity, isn't it? Yes. But what about cybersecurity? And, and it's a factor, isn't it? It's a big factor. Uh, so uh, c- cybersecurity requires um, individuals who have who are data owners or who are system owners to think about where the boundaries are drawn. It's kind of easy if uh, if we're deploying on an internal network or infrastructure because I kind of own those boundaries um, at the fence level almost. Uh, in the cloud, they're a little bit more uh, op- um, opaque. Uh, the cloud is secure uh, if done correctly. The problem is the cloud service offerings allow individuals, like you said, with a credit card to go in there and to start procuring services and deliver those services without really thinking about security. Uh, And so um, there is a risk just because it allows people to do really stupid things. If you do it smartly, the cloud can be secure, Uh, but that uh, requires a governance process and a methodology that starts really by thinking about cyber uh, at the very beginning and how you're going to roll that out. In one of those Back to the Future movies, they're on that train and they hit the point of no return. Remember that? It was the point of no mm, return. Yes, yes. And so what happens if an agency commits to the cloud and they decide that it may not be worth it on a pullback? Is there a point of no return or can people pull back? We see commercial organizations kind of changing and they're saying, well, maybe it's not what it was meant up to be. Yeah, the, so I think there are uh, – there's certainly a, a – um, very. there are a lot of options when it comes to committing and pulling back from the cloud – uh, really, what, what it comes some some of the things that it boils down to is a balance between um, uh, leveraging cloud native services and being cloud neutral. Um, so, if you are cloud neutral, and, and this is a this is a we have a we have, we have a methodology at Lidos where we follow to to enable our customers to really kind of feel where where are they on this scale between full scale cloud adoption and ability to pull back. Um, so, uh, one of the things that we we advocate is understanding. Uh, what is your motivating or driving factor? Uh, before even committing to the cloud, uh, we advocate a, a kind of what we call a dual ops mindset. You, if you have current services that are being delivered via traditional means, um, and then you go to the cloud, before you commit fully to the cloud, we want to make sure that uh, the services, the um, the costs, and the uh, the the end efficiencies are really being realized so that we don't want to get in a position where we, we make an oops and say we go too far and then have to pull back. We want to make, we want to be careful, but if we do have to pull back, we have methodologies that allow us to pull out of the cloud uh, and back into maybe a a fully um, on-premise or hybrid environment very quickly. So make an assessment first before you make a commitment. Definitely make an assessment first and you make sure you have the right metrics. We're going to pause here for a short break. My guest today is Keith Johnson, Chief Technology Officer and Chief Engineer, Defense and Intelligence Group, Lightos. I'm your moderator, John Gilroy, on the discussion, Putting the Cloud to Work in Government, sponsored by Lightos on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. For decades, Lidos has been trusted by government and business to solve complex challenges with the application of IT, engineering, and science. This year, gain transformative insights from thought leaders at Lidos, ranked number one in government IT and systems integration on top-of-mind topics including cloud, legacy systems, IT modernization, open systems, and cybersecurity. 
Hear more at federalnewsradio.com by searching Lidos. That's L-E-I-D-O-S. Welcome back to the discussion, Putting the Cloud to Work in Government, sponsored by Lidos on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. My guest today is Keith Johnson, Chief Technology Officer and Chief Engineer, Defense and Intelligence Group at Lidos. I'm your moderator, John Gilroy. Well, we got to talk about Bruce Springsteen here, believe it or not. Right. You know, he once wrote that there are 500 channels and nothing to watch, you know. I think people who work for the federal government are getting inundated with data, and they may have 500 petabytes of data and, and nothing to analyze. I mean, how do you analyze that much mm-hmm. information? People are becoming desensitized to the information they're getting. There's so much there. So, so what criteria should people in the area here, Washington, D.C. area, use to select correct tool for data analysis? Well, I think it starts before thinking about tools. Uh, it starts with two questions that I like to ask. One is, what are the questions that you want answered from your, from your data? Uh, and the second one is, where is your data? Um, so, for instance, in the questions, there could be uh, you know, questions around how efficient is my workforce? Um, where are my customer desi- uh, desires? Uh, where are my constituents? Um, you know, where are the bad guys, right? So all these are questions that we need to be answering. And the, some of the data ca- to help answer that uh, is potentially buried in areas where we can't actually get at it, right? So the questions help determine where what the data I need. Then is, where is my data? Uh, there's, a, across all organizations, not just federal government, there is um, a, a problem of, of data silos because different organizations own different elements of the data. Uh, and so, uh, in order to address uh, the the tool question, we really got to start by asking ourselves, you know, who owns the data and where where is it located? So often, um, when when I go to organizations that that want to you know answer questions, you know, start with the data analytics, they start with the tools and the infrastructure, and they spend a year just building out an infrastructure. Because, for instance, if I have you know, data from a human a human resources department that's very um, um, sensitive. Uh, they want to build a, an infrastructure that is uh, very protected and allows only the right people to access that that data. Mm-hmm. But an, an alternative approach is simply to to take that HR data, mask it, ha- hash out, hash out the the employee ID fields and the names and the social security numbers, and then use. Uh, existing tools, existing infrastructure, or even take it to the cloud. Use the cloud, do an analysis, only get charged for the minutes or hours that I'm using the cloud, and then bring it back, and then uh, unmask the data and allow it to be uh, to be evaluated. And so, if we start with the data and the questions that want that we need to ask, I think that that a lot, that really informs tool selection and infrastructure selection. And sometimes it almost requires an outsider to say, "Well, what about this?" Because you know, you're, you're absorbed in a problem. You're so deep. Like I've been yeah. in spreadsheets and then, and then the most obvious thing didn't till the next day. So what happens is maybe an outsider can tell you what the right question to ask is. It could, it could be because uh, outsiders obviously have a, have, have a different perspective and they also can provide a, a new view on how to, to, to more efficiently analyze information. We kind of, when we own the data in the systems, we kind of we kept, we were bound by that those system boundaries that we just feel are immovable. 
um, because of this, the organizational inertia that we all experience. Outsiders who don't have that can really are free to think of new solutions. And so when we go into new customers, we, we, we bring uh, you know, our set of tools and perspective from the broader industry trends and what's worked across not just the federal government but commercial industry, which I think helps provide um, a better outcome as, as, we, as ever, all organizations move toward this kind of a data analytics approach. And one source of all this information that's flooding the people in the federal government is the Internet of Things, I mean, IoT. I saw an ad the other day where there's a UPS truck that pulled up and a drone got out of the truck and delivered the box and came down. Yeah. I said to myself, look yeah. at all that data that's being collected. You know, those drones are just absorbing information. There's mm-hmm. satellites. There's all kinds of information there. So so what about this fancy phrase, artificial intelligence? Can that um, help our, our people who are listening to this interview understand some of this data? Our, certainly it can. Uh, there is no way that uh, humans will be able to scale as the data scales. So our ability to evaluate all the data uh, is not uh, cannot scale with the amount of data that is being uh, generated, uh, useful data that's being generated. Uh, artificial intelligence, which is, has been proven in multiple industries as being very effective, is, is like the first front of, an, of data analysis. Uh, Andrew Ng, who's a um, kind of a guru in, in artificial intelligence, um, has a great metric that I have adopted as we as we evaluate where to insert artificial intelligence in our customers' work work um, flows. Uh, if any human task uh, is something that you that a human can do within one second, you know, there's a lot of tasks that we all can do, like uh, looking at, a, at an image and, and looking for things in an image, or or, or quickly scanning an email. Uh, all those tasks that take less than a, less than or around one second for a human to do. Uh, an algorithm can probably do that as effectively. Um, so if you look at things like um, you know, Google Photos, uh, I, I can now type into Google Photos uh, just questions around, uh, you know, show me all my pictures where I went to Mount Hood three years ago, and it will find them uh, without wow. me labeling them or, or anything because of the algorithms. Those are, are being now applied to, uh, to lots of different data sets and it is only a matter of years, maybe months sometimes, before uh, these algorithms will be able to be, provide meaningful results to some of our customers. So some of the mundane uh, searching capabilities can be done with AI, but there still is a level of critical analysis that's needed. It is an interplay between the human and the algorithms. Algorithms are not going to be able to um, develop insight. That's where humans uh, uh, really excel. Uh, and so our, as we go to work with customers, it's, it's not how can, I cut, how can I cut people. It's how can I take the people that you have in your workforce and elevate them uh, and, and have them do more meaningful work. Mm, that, that's a challenge. We're going to pause here for a short break. My guest today is Keith Johnson, Chief Technology Officer and Chief Engineer, Defense and Intelligence Group at Lighthouse. I'm your moderator, John Gilroy, on the discussion, Putting the Cloud to Work in Government. Sponsored by Lidos on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. For decades, Lidos has been trusted by government and business to solve complex challenges with the application of IT, engineering, and science. This year, gain transformative insights from thought leaders at Lidos, ranked number one in government IT and systems integration on top of mind topics including cloud, legacy systems, IT modernization, open systems, and cybersecurity. Hear more at federalnewsradio.com by searching Lidos. That's L-E-I-D-O-S. Welcome back to the discussion, Putting the Cloud to Work in Government. 
sponsored by Lidos on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. My guest today, Keith Johnson, Chief Technology Officer and Chief Engineer, Defense and Intelligence Group at Lidos. Your moderator, John Gilroy. We know, Keith, the marketing professionals in the commercial world claim that if um, a person cannot load your website in three seconds, they bounce out of there. Just three seconds. Think of that. They also claim from Google that 51% of all searches are done on mobile devices. This is putting quite a burden on our federal listeners and our federal website developers, isn't it? Uh, it, it certainly is. It certainly is. Uh, user experience uh, is, is absolutely critical um, in order to really deliver effective services uh, to, our, to customers. Um, and so that it really starts with um, you know, taking a user-centric design um, and, and cascading that through the process of delivering uh, web services to clients. This is where cloud can kind of help uh, in some ways. In particular, um, you've, we've all been on websites that are inundated with uh, requests and get really slow. Right. So what the cloud can help you do if you design your application and web service correctly is that can scale as as the use as more users uh, come on as the load increases, uh, the cloud can help scale applications. So it delivers the exact same performance, uh, even though uh, there may be a peak, uh, you know, think of like a tax tax season. Uh, you know, you, you want to be able to deliver a consistent um, service, just, you know, irrespective of the amount of users who are hitting a system. Historically, that's meant over-provisioning your infrastructure uh, to meet that critical um, metric. Now, you don't need to really worry about that as much, as long as you uh, architect your, your um, web service correctly. Uh, the, the, other, the other area uh, that you can, um, you know, to deliver good web um, user experiences is continuing to test you know how how well is your service delivery accepted in the response rate, and you can do that through various means. I mean, the traditional one is A/B testing, where you're constantly tweaking, changing the design, getting feedback, understanding was there was the expected response um, uh, the anticipated response, and then um, you can then use that into a iterative design process to ensure that you are delivering. Um, uh, you know, on that user experience. The other thing that federal um, uh, agencies have to deal with is um, making sure that they're compliant with accessibility. Uh, and so we've uh, we've been working with uh, you know the the groups like 18F who have generated 508 compliant uh, style sheets to ensure that uh, we meet the accessibility guidelines. An example that that we at Lidos uh, uh, generated uh, is the identitytheft.gov website. That's something that we we uh, we delivered. Um, and um, really follows not just accessibility standards, but the clean uh, uh, kind of modern style that users are expecting to see. We don't want uh, our federal customers to have a web presence that significantly deviates from how they th- those same customers receive other services from the commercial world. Uh, and so we're uh, we're always. Uh, looking to see how can we make sure that we're bringing the best from commercial while meeting uh, the accessibility and compliance standards that are that, are, that the federal agencies need, need, to, need to abide by. In the commercial world, I have companies that call me and they have a WordPress site, let's say, and they want to speed it up because it's slow. And the utility I like is a utility called Smush. <laughs> now, in the commercial world, just throw anything out, it works. In the federal government, wait a minute here, it has to comply. There's certain cybersecurity yes. standards and we have to take them. And what about this style sheet and everything else? So yes. some of the tools that... Mm-hmm you are allowed to use with our federal listeners aren't as flexible as some of the tools in the outside world, are they? 
They're not. Uh, and, and you do bring up cybersecurity, uh, which is which is very important. Um, the uh, the challenge that um, the federal agencies have um, is um, when we go to maybe generate a new service, there is a uh, a a data ownership and a uh, an issue around who needs to approve um, for like let's just focus on cybersecurity. Who does the approval process? Typically, those that organization doesn't live within the same group as the as the organization that wants to deliver the service. Um, and so what happens is they lack context. When you lack context uh, and you want to do something new, it takes a long time. And that's where we see uh, slower evolving uh, capabilities and services in federal government. But federal government's not, al- not alone in uh, having to adhere to you know, very stringent uh, cybersecurity guidelines. Um, take the banking industry. Um, I would assert that they have as strong or stronger uh, cybersecurity um, requirements, and yet they have been able to innovate uh, in like mobile banking apps uh, to allow access to very sensitive data without the multi-factor authentication process. So what we've done in, in our in the website that I mentioned before, um, identitytheft.gov, is we've followed those models where um, we use text-based authentication uh, to enable uh, access to that information instead of the the, the, the traditional kind of two-factor authentication methods, which is very difficult, especially on a mobile device. Yeah. So if someone's listening to this, they can go to that site and say, well, let's see what he can do. <laughs> yeah, kind of yeah, a, well, <laughs> a proof of concept here because exactly. yep. you can work within the restrictions, yes. limitations of the federal government. And, and by the way, people who are, for example, financial consultants, they're extremely limited what they can email, what they can put on social media. So a lot of parallel problems in the private world, aren't there? Yeah, it, it, I like to uh, advance that that. Conway's law, which basically says we, we build systems applications that mimic the organizational structures that we have is in play. So if you are an organization where like where cybersecurity um, um, approval process is separate from from the organization that needs to develop a system, you're likely going to have a lot of tension and it's going to require it's going to uh, result in very slow evolving capabilities. What we advocate is cross-functional teams. It's really going back to the basics where they are empowered to make the decisions uh, to uh, deliver the service that's required. If you have a team that's composed of the developers, the infrastructure providers, uh, cloud security, um, and uh, other cybersecurity functions all together, they have the ability to innovate and to deliver a very effective service while adhering to all the requirements that, uh, that we as federal agencies have to have to live by. And usually with groups like that, it's uh, it's more of a social challenge than a technical challenge because I would say sometimes the cybersecurity people may be a little uh, finicky <laughs> and have to work with them in many aspects, don't you? It all comes back to context. Yeah. Um, cybersecurity professionals um, uh, are under extreme pressure to ensure that uh, data is protected and that people's, uh, really people's livelihoods are protected. Uh, so they take that job very seriously. Um, uh, the 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 issue that we have, the, the the constraint that we're all working against is the fact that uh, new technologies are rolling in all the time that make it easier to de- deliver those services. And our cyber professionals have to be part of the process of developing and and, and innovating in order to ensure that we uh, are are all on the same page of, of, of being secure but delivering effective services. I'd like to thank today's guest, Keith Johnson, Chief Technology Officer and Chief Engineer, Defense and Intelligence Group at Lighthouse. I'm John Gilroy on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. 
For more on this discussion, visit federalnewsradio.com and search cloud. Thank you for listening to this week's Cloud Insights show, sponsored by Lidos on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. The entire program can be found on demand at federalnewsradio.com. Search cloud.